Well, good morning. Good to be with you. I just had a sweet moment over there. I just realized it was about four years ago that I was sitting in the same place, January, February 2020, uh, coming here to preach for the first time. Didn't know what the future held. We were living in Portland, Oregon at the time, and here I am four years later, uh, and we are just so blessed and happy to be here. Um, And I was also thinking about in 2020, the Chiefs also beat the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Um, So, you know, it's just hopefully uh, 2024 won't go like 2020 in the um, continual COVID thing that happened after that. But we are just so happy to be here and so happy to be preaching to you this morning. I want to draw your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, if you have a Bible, if you'd open it there, to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 17. This scene is also recounted in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. But we're going to be looking at Matthew's account of the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. This is what the word of the Lord says. After six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Let's go before the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it continues to speak to us today, that it doesn't just speak of times past or in times past but it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces our heart and our soul, and it reveals to us who Christ is and who we are. And so, Father, I pray now that you would guard my thoughts and my words to be faithful only to you and to your word. Father, we are weak and we need the help of your spirit to understand, to have spiritual understanding. Would you give us life again? Would you soften our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a lot of important questions that you need to answer in your life. Questions such as, What am I going to do when I grow up? Am I going to get married? 
Who am I going to marry? Where will I go to church? Where will I live? Do I have a purpose? Who am I? What sort of shoe person will I be? However, there is one question that every person on this planet needs to answer. There's one question that transcends all these other questions. There's one question that will determine your eternal state. Every human being on this earth has to answer this question, and they answer it in some way, whether they like to or not. And that question is simple. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There are a lot of texts we could go to in the Bible to answer this question. But I think one of the clearest texts we have on this is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. However, my guess is that it's probably not the first text that you go to to answer that question of who Jesus is. That's because while it's a revealing text, it's also a confusing text. We don't always know what to do with it. We have Jesus go up on a high mountain with his three disciples. Why didn't he bring others if this is such an important event? Why only three? Then he becomes shiny, bright. And again, we wonder, what's the point of this? Why does he glow suddenly? Then some dead guys, and I mean dead dead, like Moses has been dead for 1,400 years, appear. They show up on his right and his left, and they have this little conversation. And we wonder, why, why did they show up? What's going on here? Why did they appear? Peter then mumbles something about making tents, and Mark says he didn't know what to say because he was confused. We, we are in the same place as Peter. Maybe we're just confused about what's going on in this event. And then a cloud comes, and a voice speaks from the cloud, declaring, Jesus is the beloved son. Listen to him. And we think, we've already heard that. We heard that in the baptism. Why is this occurring again? In short, we might not go to the scene often because there is a lot of mystery surrounding it. It's a somewhat mystical scene. We like more concrete scenes. This one, we just don't know maybe what to do with it. However, I think it's one of the most revealing texts in terms of Jesus's identity. While I won't have time to answer all of these questions, nor will I have time to go verse by verse. I tried to write this going verse by verse, and it just kept growing longer and longer and longer. So I decided to do a more thematic look at this text by pointing your attention to three imperatives or three commands that are drawn from this text that help us see who Jesus is. These three things are ascend, listen, and behold. Ascend, listen, and behold, we understand who Jesus is, if you're a note taker, by ascending, listening, and beholding. First, to understand who Jesus is, this text tells us we must ascend. You can see that at the start of the narrative in 17.1. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So the location 
the setting of the transfiguration is a high mountain. Now, people, if you go to the commentaries, you'll look and, and many of them discuss, okay, which mountain is this? Is this Mount Tabor? That's kind of the traditional site. Maybe it's Mount Hermon. We're not entirely sure exactly which mountain it is. And many commentators spend all their time thinking, which mountain is this? But that is not the point of the text because none of the gospel writers nor Peter in his second epistle give us the location of the mountain. The point is, it is a high mountain. It's a high mountain. And mountains are very important in the biblical storyline. The garden in Genesis is described as the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel 28. God meets Abraham on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And maybe most importantly, Moses ascends Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 to meet the Lord. Isaiah speaks about the mountain of the Lord in the new creation. In summary, mountains are places of revelation. Mountains are places where heaven meets earth, where you're between the spaces. You're partially in the heavens and you're partially on the earth. These are places where you meet God. These are places of union, where you come to the point of something. These are places where you finally get perspective. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain, but if you ever climb a mountain, when we lived in Oregon, I'd often go to mountains where I didn't have to have all the snow gear to climb these mountains where you could just hike up to the top. And if you get to the top of a mountain when it's a clear day, you can just see so far and you get perspective on the landscape. In the same way, mountains are places where God is revealed and you get perspective on life and reality. The point for our purposes, though, is that to see who Jesus is, we must also be led, like the disciples, up the mountain. And some of you might be wondering if I simply mean we need to climb mountains to meet God. This is what people in the Pacific Northwest did to go to church. They would just climb mountains. They wouldn't go to church. However, that's not what I'm talking about. In the Christian tradition, Ascending the mountain has been used as imagery to describe how we lift our hearts to God. How we seek the things that are above. How we reach for the new creation. We must follow him to see him up the mountain. We must seek for him at the highest place. We must set our minds on the things that are above. So what does this look like? How, how do you do that in your own life? How, how, can we, how can we seek to ascend with Jesus up the mountain to see him? Well, the rest of the scriptures help us here. First, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, actually answer this question for us. The psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend the mountain of God? And who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. To see Jesus, to ascend God's mountain, we must Cleanse our hearts. We must purify our hands. We can't see him if we are not cleansing our hearts. And even as I thought about this, at this point, there was a little voice that went off in my head. And it said, well, wait a second. The gospel is that we are cleansed, not that we need to cleanse ourselves. And I think this is wonderfully true. 
However, the scriptures are not ashamed or bashful about commanding us to pursue righteousness and in saying that Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus leads us up the mountain. He cleanses us and he tells us, cleanse your hearts, purify your hands. We must not be afraid of the commands in the scriptures. So to ascend, we must, as the author to the Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Oh, you love that image? You're climbing the mountain and there's things that are dragging you down and you need to release those and get rid of those so that you might ascend the mountain. And that's primarily referring to sin, to sin. Second, ascending the mountain to see God is done through prayer, through prayer. It's in Luke's telling of this story that we learn that they go up to the mountain to pray, Luke 9, 28. And while this might seem like the standard Christian sermon application, I'm more and more convinced as I get older, even though I don't maybe look so old, that we need the standard Christian application more, not less. Prayer is the thoroughfare that connects heaven to earth. In prayer, we unite our hearts and minds to God. We ask that heaven would fill our hearts and this whole earth, that God's presence would envelop our presence, that he would be in us so that Christ might live through us. Prayer is maybe the primary way We ascend toward God and lift our hearts to him. Do you want to see Jesus? Pray, pray. I don't know if you've ever been at a place in your life where you ask God to show himself to you. I know I have, but when I look back at these times, it's often the case that I'm the one who's blocking this vision, not him. We say, we want to see more of him, but I'm not getting rid of the sin in my life. We say, I want to see your glory, but our prayer life is dried up. How do we ascend the mountain of the Lord? We cleanse ourselves. We lift our hearts to him in prayer, and we open ourselves up to him so that we might see him, that we might know him more, that we might pursue him. So Jesus, in the same way, he leads his disciples up the mountains. I love the image. It's almost like he takes them by the hand. He says, come with me. Let me show you who I am. Let him take you by the hand up the mountain. He he wants to reveal himself to you. He's not blocking the vision of himself to you. He wants to lead you up the mountain. Second, To see who Jesus is, we not only need to ascend, but listen, there's only one command in all the transfiguration narrative. There's one imperative that's found in 17 verse 5. It says, while Peter was still speaking, this is like an interruption to Peter. The voice from heaven is saying, Peter, you got it all wrong. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this... This one is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's the command. Listen to him. 
The command is to listen. And this command actually might strike us as a little odd if you pay attention to the context, because this is one of the few scenes in all the Gospels where Jesus doesn't speak. Most of the time, Jesus is giving some sort of sermon, saying some sort of something. And in this text, he's not speaking. So what, what does it mean to listen to him? Well, right before the transfiguration narrative, Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. In all the Gospels, it occurs at the same place. It's after Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, and then Jesus predicts that he's going to die, and he will rise again. And Peter is so upset. The Messiah can't die. The Messiah can't die. So the main point of the transfiguration narrative, if you want to actually give a big picture look at it, is to give the disciples hope and comfort in light of Jesus's coming death. He says, yes, I'm going to die, but look at the glory that's going to come. So when the father says, listen to him, what is he referring to? Well, in the immediate context, he's saying, listen to what he's saying about his suffering. Listen to him because suffering will not be the end. Suffering will lead to glory. Listen to him. There is no crown without the cross, no light without the darkness, no salvation without suffering. Listen, listen to what he says. But second, this command to listen also paints Jesus as a new Moses and thus the new prophet. The command to listen hails from Deuteronomy 18, 15, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. To him you must listen. So Jesus is the new prophet on the mountain. You have Moses and Elijah appear who represent the law and the prophets and the father speaks in the singular and he says, listen to him. They valued Moses and Elijah. This was the Jewish tradition that they followed, that they learned from the time they were young. And the father says, listen to him. Listen to him. Actually, the prophets predicted that this would take place. He affirms their voice, but he is the ultimate voice. To him, you must listen. But there's actually even a third text. This is where I have too much on this, right? There's a third text in the Old Testament that calls Israel to listen. It's a very famous text. It's the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, it says, listen or hear, O Israel. Listen, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This faint echo back to this text implies that Jesus is not only just a new prophet, not only just a new Moses, he's the one true God of Israel. They listen to Yahweh by listening to Jesus, for he is God's beloved son. This is my beloved son. And if you want to understand who Jesus is, our call is also not only just to ascend, but to listen, to listen. The author to the Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In the Old Testament, it was Adam and Eve who fell because they didn't listen. They listened to the wrong voice. It was the wilderness generation that died because they didn't listen. It was Israel who was exiled because they didn't listen to the prophets in the Torah the great danger in our own lives is that we also would drift away from listening 
listening to Jesus. We all know people who have drifted away from the Lord. I remember in college, I was being discipled by our college campus minister, and we were sitting around with, there may have been 12 of us, I don't remember, that'd be weird if there were 12 of us, but there were 12 of us he was discipling, and we were, we were with Campus Crusade for Christ, and, and one day he told us, he's been doing this for over 30 years, and he looked at us and he said, based on my experience in doing this ministry, 60% of you won't be walking with the Lord in 10 years. Now, he didn't say that to be morbid, but to put the fear of God in us. He says, here's the deal. You're walking with the Lord now. You're actually leaders in this campus ministry. We have identified you to help lead these students. And 60% of you, for my 30 years of doing this, in 10 years won't be walking with the Lord. And the really sad thing is, more than half of that room, to my knowledge, is no longer following Jesus. He was right. He was right. The great danger for the Christian is drifting, drifting towards destruction by not listening anymore. Most of the time we think of rebellion as actively disobeying God, and and certainly that occurs. But to drift, you actually just don't have to do anything. You just kind of float down the river like a leaf. You let the river take you. But the remedy is to listen, to pay closer attention. And this causes us to ask ourselves, Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Everyone is listening to someone, and every voice is trying to tell you something. Disciples of Jesus listen to Jesus. They listen to Jesus. My kids often ask me, why can't I hear God speak to me, though? (laughs) Like, I wish God would just speak to me. Like, I pray, and he he doesn't speak back. Like, you tell me to listen, but like every other relationship I have, it seems like there's actually a voice coming back. What am I supposed to do with this? But I always remind them, God does and he has spoken to us. Hebrews says in the past, God has spoken to us by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us in the Son, whom we read about in the word. This is not to deny that he communicates with us personally. But if all we had was personal communication, can you imagine the confusion? You would have people running around. We actually do have people running around saying, well, God told me to do this. God told me to do this. God told me to do this. And everyone would be like, I don't know what to do with that. How can I confirm or deny that that is what God told you to do? We need something more sure, more steady, more anchoring. We need something written down that will last that will bind us to God's word. And so the word of the son is written down in the scriptures. And we have it as an enduring testimony. And it is to this that we must listen. So I say, he has spoken to you in all of this. These are his words to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's why we do so much of what we do inside of these walls. That's why we come to chapel, to hear the scriptures preached. That's why we learn to interpret the scriptures. That's why we take the languages. That's why we take church history and ethics. That's why we learn systematic theology and counseling and music. We do so because we want to listen and obey. To listen and obey. We listen to him when he tells us who we are. 
his beloved children. We listen to him when he tells us what to do in our churches. We listen to him in terms of gender and sexuality. We listen to him in terms of what men and women are called to do in the church. We listen to him in everything because we know that in him is life, fullness of life. He doesn't give us these commands because he's trying to restrict us. He gives us these commands to free us, to help us. And so when we stop listening to him, we're hurting ourselves. Listen to him. He wants you to have fullness of life. Ascend the mountain with him and listen to the son. Pay much closer attention. Finally, the point of ascending, the point of listening is to behold him. In 17.2, the text says, Jesus was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. There are hardly any texts about Jesus's physical appearance. But this is one of them. And we don't get a lot of details, but we get something. To say that Jesus is transfigured is to say that his outward physical being is changed. The text goes on to explain what this means. His face shines like the sun and his clothes become white as light. This means his very being and even that which touches his being, his clothes, shine with light. And I just want you to note this light is not any normal light. It's not that the sun, think about the movies, is positioned just directly where they're like, oh, it just hit right at the right time, and he's shining. No, actually, according to Luke, it seems like this might be at night because the disciples fall into a deep sleep while they're praying. It's not there's a light shining on him. No, this light, it emanates from him. It comes from him. This light is supernatural. Mark's narrative even says his clothes are whiter than any laundry mat can make them. In other words, OxyClean isn't going to do this, right? This is Jesus and his clothes are dazzlingly white. This is not natural light. This is divine light. God is light. And if you look through the biblical storyline, God often appears as light and fire. God appears to Abraham as a flaming torch in Genesis 15. God also appears to Moses in a flame of fire within a bush on Mount Sinai and on Mount Sinai. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, fire descends from heaven. This helps us interpret what's happening here. When we think about and hear that Jesus ascends a mountain and his face shines, we naturally think, oh, this is the new Moses because he went up Mount Sinai and his face also shone. So Jesus is like the new Moses. And yes, he is, but there's so much more because Moses's face shone because it reflected the glory of God. Jesus's face shines from the overflow of who he is. Moses' face shone because he saw someone. He saw Yahweh. Jesus' face shines because of who he is. Moses' face was a reflection. Jesus' face shines because he is light. In other words, Moses' glory was derivative. Jesus' is essential. And this is such an important point for who Jesus is because Paul tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. 
and no one has ever seen him or can see him. You cannot approach the light of God, except according to this text, through the mediator, Jesus Christ. You cannot approach the light because what happens to the disciples here? They fall down on the ground as if dead. And Jesus comes and what does he do? He touches them. He says, arise, do not be afraid. I am the mediator. I am unapproachable light, but it's through me that you see God. It was Moses who saw something of God in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai, but he wanted more. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God, let me see your glory. And God says, you can't see my face because if you see my face, you will die. I will show you my back. But now Moses sees the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the mountain of transfiguration. His request, let me see your glory is fulfilled here. He now sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the same way, we are called to behold him, to look unto him, look at his humble birth, Look at him when he is tempted. Look at him when he touches the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Look at him as he raises the dead. Look at him as he cleanses those who have unclean spirits. Look at him as the nails pierce his hands and the spear pierces his side. Look at him when he draws his last breath. Look at him when he cries out from the cross. Look at him when he walks out of the tomb. Look at him when he ascends with the clouds of heaven. Look at him as he intercedes for us in the heavens. Look at him as he ascends and sits at the right hand of the throne of God forever. As Protestants, we're more likely to talk about listening to Jesus than looking at him. But the goal of our life is to behold him. We listen in order to look, in order. We listen now in order to see him. Paul tells us that we now see dimly in a mirror, but then, then on the last day, we will see him face to face. David says in the Psalms, one thing I've asked of the Lord, what do I want to do? One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. This is the goal of my life, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Our entire life ought to be animated by seeking after one thing, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. And the devil's aim, what? He's going to distract us. He doesn't want you to see. He will put anything and everything in front of your eyes to block your vision. He's going to try to drag you down that mountain so that you can't see. Because he knows when you see, you will be transformed. When you see, you will be transformed. He will tell us your sins are too great. You don't don't belong to be on the top of that mountain. He will tell you, you have no faith. He will tell you, you don't repent enough. You don't deserve this. He will tell you, you will never be able to continue to the end. If people knew what you thought about. No, you can't see him. But these are lies. He's the great liar. We look to our savior because he is our great advocate. He is our suffering servant who has said, I will die in your place. I know all your sins and I accept you as you are. And I love you because you are my beloved children. 
Do not listen to him. Do not listen to his voice. Look at Christ, not yourself. Keep your eye on him, on his sufferings and his future glory and his past glory. For when we see him, when we see the scars, yet the light coming out of his scars, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And one of the coolest things about heaven is it's not only that we will see him, but we will continually grow in our understanding of him. I think we, we think of heaven like a static way. Like we see him and we're like, cool, now we saw him. Like what else do we do now? Like what, what, what else is there to do? But that, that's not how heaven's going to be. Our God is infinite. We are finite. So therefore, our sight of God will always be even in heaven, this is what the Christian, Christian tradition has said, progressive, progressive. Our future will be infinite progress toward the perfection that exists in God. Well, it might sound like, well, wait, does that mean we're never fulfilled? No. The idea is rather that once we have reached one degree of fulfillment, we're like, oh, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. It's just as C.S. Lewis said, further up and further in, further up and further in. We will see him and we will long to see more and more. And every day in the new creation, we will awaken and say, isn't he glorious? Again and again and again. And we'll see more and more and more. To understand who Jesus is, we must behold him. And when we do, we will shine like the stars of heaven. I began by saying there is one question. There is one question, one fundamental question in life that you must answer, that every human being must answer. That question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And how does the transfiguration answer that question? Well, it tells us Jesus is not only the one who ascended the mountain, but the one who descended upon the mountain. Jesus is not only the one to whom we must listen because he's the new prophet, but because he is the God of Israel. Jesus is not only like Moses whose face shone, but the one whom Moses longed to look at. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The transfiguration says you can't simply say one thing. If you say one thing, you will be damned according to the scriptures. To be a Christian, you need to say two things. Two things. You need to say, as the Chalcedonian Creed said, he's truly God and he's truly man. You have to say two things. He has two natures, and those two natures are not confused. They are indivisible, inseparable, but the property of each nature is preserved. In the transfiguration, we see one of the clearest pictures that Jesus is truly God and, and truly man. Two natures in one subject. And to see this, we must ascend, listen, and behold. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our heart's desire is to see you. And I recognize, even as I say those words, some might be here and they don't feel like that's their heart's desire right now. And so, Father, we pray if we don't desire to see you, that you would awaken that within us. It's only by your grace that we are saved. It's only by your work in our life that even that desire comes to us. And so, Father, would we long to see you, and would we be transformed by beholding you. We thank you for your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.